About 5.30 p.m. on Sunday, March 13, 1977, John LeMay, 17, told his next-door neighbor that he was going to Redondo Beach to see a guy he'd met at a gym in downtown Los Angeles, whose name was Dave. When John didn't come home that night or the next day, his hysterical mother called the El Segundo police, certain that something had happened to him, claiming that her son didn't just go off for days at a time. Police chalked it up as another teen runaway. On March 18th, the remains of John LeMay, who was homosexual, were discovered beside a highway south of Corona. He had been carefully dismembered, all the body parts washed and drained of blood, and neatly packed into five industrial trash bags. Each bag was carefully sealed with nylon filament tape, and three of the bags had been crammed into an empty 80-gallon oil drum, the other two left on the ground next to it. The boy's head was missing, but a birthmark clearly identified the remains as belonging to John LeMay. The decade of the 70s was a confusing time for young people, particularly young gay people. The AIDS epidemic hadn't been named as a serious threat yet. The popularity of gay bathhouses, gay bars, and anonymous sex in parks, public toilets, and parties was at its frenzied zenith. Gays were coming out with a vengeance, and they were finally taking what they considered their rightful freedoms. In the wake of the free love 60s in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury, young people headed to California in droves. Gay teens were drawn there as if to Mecca. Misunderstood youths ran away from unsympathetic parents, stuck out their thumbs, and headed to their promised land. They didn't necessarily find what they were looking for. Many of them ended up as boy prostitutes, trying to eke out a meager living. During the 70s and early 80s, more than a hundred young hitchhikers caught rides on the streets and freeways of Southern California and didn't live to tell about it. They were young, pretty, and eventually desperate. According to Berkeley psychologist Michael Evans, homosexuals are an easy population to get access to in some anonymous way. Chicago Police Sergeant Richard Sandberg put it another way. The gays are easy prey. Hitchhiking has never been a safe mode of transportation, but in the 1970s, getting into a car with a stranger was a horrifyingly common occurrence. Predators cruised the freeway on-ramps and beach highways. They frequented bars, hoping to find young boys in an agreeable state of inebriation. Sometimes they were looking for money, sometimes for quick, impersonal sex. Sometimes they wanted to vent their frustrations and rage on someone, anyone unsuspecting. While homosexuals constitute only about 5% of serial killers, they're more prone to overkill than their straight counterparts, indulging in the more horrific extremes of torture, mutilation, and dismemberment. Gay men are also among the most prolific of serial killers. The sheer promiscuity of their crimes is a kind of grotesque mirror of the free-ranging sexual lifestyle embraced by so many gay men in the pre-AIDS era of the 1970s. Why homosexual serial killers as a group should be especially sadistic is an interesting question, although one element is surely the prevailing homophobia of American society, which causes many gay men to grow up with a deep-seated sense of self-hatred a violent homophobia of their own. When these feelings are combined with the psychopathology of a serial killer, the results can be particularly appalling. The FBI estimates that somewhere between 10 and 50 serial killers are still at large in America. Patrick Wayne Kearney was born in Texas in 1940, the youngest of three boys. He was thin, shy, prone to illness, and an easy target for schoolyard bullies. 
By the time he was eight years old, he knew he would kill people. By the time he was a much-ridiculed teen, he was actively fantasizing about murder. His fantasies were very detailed. And then, he tried it. It started in the mid-60s, in Tijuana and San Diego. He picked up guys in bars, bus stops, and places where gay men congregated, looking for a quickie in the bushes. They were easy to find, easy to kill, bodies easy to dispose of in the desert. But in his public life, Kearney appeared normal. He put his time in with the army as well as into a short marriage. Neither of those situations suited him. In 1962, Kearney met David Douglas Hill. Hill was married and an army veteran. A six-foot-two high school dropout from Lubbock, Hill joined the army in 1960, but was quickly discharged on a diagnosis of an unspecified personality disorder. Back in Lubbock, he married his high school sweetheart, but, like Kearney's trial marriage, Hill's was short-lived. When he met Kearney, Hill divorced his wife and moved to California with Kearney in 1967. Patrick got a good job as an aeronautics engineer with Hughes Aircraft, and David stayed home. But though it was love at first sight when they met, their ten-year life together was tumultuous and stormy. Frequently, Hill would stomp out of the house and go spend a few nights with some friends. Or he'd pick up a one-night stand out of frustration and revenge. Occasionally, he went all the way home to Lubbock. But he always returned. When Hill was gone, Kearney's impotent frustrations reached a boiling point. There was only one thing he knew that would satisfy those feelings of repressed rage. When Hill left the house after a fight, Kearney would go prowling. He'd jump in his Volkswagen and go out to pick up hitchhikers or young men from gay bars. Being of slight build, he had a surefire system of subduing his victims. He shot them in the head with a 22 caliber pistol without warning. Sometimes he'd be driving down the highway, paying strict attention to the speed limit with his left hand on the steering wheel, then shoot his victim in the passenger seat with his right. Then he'd drive around until he found a suitably private place for him to relieve his frustrations, vent his rage, and wield his power. As soon as he was alone with their corpses, he would undress them and have sex with them. Then he would employ the hacksaw and cut them into pieces. If he was at home, he did this in the bathroom, fastidiously washing each body part and draining it of blood to keep it from smelling. He left no fingerprints in the dried blood. He learned all this from carefully reading the notorious crimes of Dean Coral, who murdered 17 young boys in Houston, wrapped them up in trash bags, and buried them. Kearney studied Coral's heinous crimes and collected newspaper clippings as news of his torture and murder spree came to a violent conclusion when one of his vicious accomplices killed Coral with his own gun. Most of Kearney's victims reminded him of the type of person who had given him a bad time during his teenage years, blonde and arrogant. Sometimes, after he'd kill them and had sex with their corpses, he would beat them. Patrick Kearney wasn't the only one killing young people in Southern California during this time. The Hillside Stranglers, Angelo Buono and his equally psychotic cousin, Kenneth Bianchi, were plying their trade in the same area at the same time, abducting young girls, torturing them, strangling them, and dumping their bodies wherever convenient. Zodiac Killer was on the loose, taunting police and reigning terror with his random murders. The Zebra Killers were randomly hacking people to death with machetes in San Francisco. And, closer to home, Randy Kraft was proving to be one of the all-time most demented killers of gays, 
with his incomprehensible sadistic torture methods. William Bonin, with his sidekick Vernon Butts, was also committing horribly grisly murders on young gay men and discarding the remains alongside the freeways. No wonder the police were confused. They didn't know how many serial killers they had, and they didn't know how many of them were copycat murders. But, as the body count rose, they noticed some marked differences in the modus operandi. One murderer, later to be identified as Randy Kraft, routinely picked up hitchhikers, gays, marines, or whoever caught his fancy. He then drugged them, tortured them for hours, and ended up by castrating them and shoving whatever was handy, a broom handle, a tree branch, a pole, the victim's own genitals or underwear, into their rectums. He usually did this while the victim was still alive and screaming. William Bonin strangled his victims with rope, cord, or the victim's t-shirt before ripping the corpses and throwing the bodies to the side of the road. But one killer stood out from the others by carefully dismembering his victims, cleaning them up, and tidily bagging them. The press called these the trash bag murders. The homicide cops called them the f***ing-a-bag murders. Some experts claim that serial killing is an addiction. Once they begin killing, and sometimes they kill the first time by accident, serial killers find themselves addicted to murder in an intense cycle that begins with homicidal sexual fantasies that in turn spark a desperate search for crimes, leading to a brutal killing, followed by a period of cooling off and a return to a normal daily routine, with all its unbearable stresses, disappointments, and hurts, which lead back to the re-emerging need to start fantasizing about killing again. Once a killing cycle is triggered, it is rarely broken. With time, trapped in this addiction cycle, serial killers become more frenzied, and the frequency and violence of their murders escalate exponentially until they're either caught or burn out. The killer reaches a point where killing no longer satisfies them, and they stop on their own accord if nothing else interrupts their killing career. Some commit suicide, move on to commit other crimes, or turn themselves into the police. A study of 326 U.S. male serial killers between 1800 and 1995 concluded that 87% had killed at least one stranger and 70% killed only strangers. The most prolific serial killers also tend to be the most organized. They methodically stalk their victims for the best opportunity to strike so as not to be seen, and they smartly dump the bodies far away so as not to leave any clues. Although anyone can be targeted, victims of serial killers tend to be the most vulnerable in society, children, prostitutes, and the elderly. But the most striking and intriguing aspect of serial murderers is the nature of their motivation to satisfy an intense appetite for power and sadism. The serial murderer tends to kill not for love, money, or revenge, but just for the fun of it, because it makes him feel good. Because John LeMay told his neighbor that he was going to visit someone named Dave in Redondo Beach, police equated that name with a name that regularly appeared in the sign-in sheets at the gay bathhouses, and soon was knocking on the door of the modest Kearney Hill home in Redondo. Kearney and Hill welcomed them in and seemed to be relaxed, concerned about the missing boy, and totally innocent. While there, though, investigators helped themselves to a few carpet fibers, because for the first time in a trash bag murder, carpet fibers had been caught up in the nylon filament tape used to seal the bags. The fibers matched. As soon as the police left, Kearney destroyed all the files he'd kept on Dean Coral. The police came back and asked for samples of both Kearney's and Hill's pubic hair, as well as hairs from their dog, 
The pair cooperated fully. All the fibers and hair matched evidence left on LeMay's body. But when the cops came back again, this time with a search warrant, the couple was gone. Police found a hacksaw with a fresh, clean blade, but little bits of blood and tissue were caught up in the corners. John LeMay's blood and tissue. They found residual blood all over the bathroom, invisible to the naked eye, but clearly there under forensic examination. They found familiar nylon filament tape, and a search of Kearney's office at Hughes Aircraft offered up a source of the exact same trash bags used in what was looking like upward of 20 murders. A good public relations campaign can be hard for a criminal to outrun. Most notably, victims' families use public relations as a tool to ferret out information from the public and to keep pressure on the investigative bodies. Tearful press conferences, like those the families of Lacey Peterson, Natalie Holloway and Brooke Wilberger held, keep the story in the public eye and keep the local police on their toes. Amber Alerts and the America's Most Wanted television show turn citizens into amateur sleuths. Rewards, like those posted by families, or by Oprah Winfrey, tend to capture the attention of the viewing public, an outgrowth of which is a better informed citizenry and fewer places for a fugitive to hide. The Hillside Strangler Investigation Task Force was construed as a public relations vehicle. The Los Angeles Police Department, going through the usual high-profile motions to reassure the public, set up a special task force which included the investigating officers from the Glendale Police Department and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Not that they had anything new to go on, but all the busy commotion and news conferences looked good on television. The pressure was on Kearney and Hill, too, with their photographs posted on posters. When the heat was clearly on, Kearney and Hill flew to El Paso, Texas, but knew that life on the lam was not for them. The cops knew who they were and what they looked like. At the behest of relatives, the pair returned to California and at 1.30 p.m. on July 1, 1977, walked into Riverside County Sheriff's Office, pointed at a wanted poster with their pictures on it, and said, We're them. They were booked on suspicion of two murders and had been wanted for questioning in connection with six other slayings. They were arraigned on the two murder charges. Bail was set at $500,000 each. Kearney cooperated fully with the police. He said the murders excited him and gave him a feeling of dominance. The idea of hurting and killing someone sounded sexually exciting. When officers grilled him about picking up Marines and feeding pills and booze to his victims, they got a blank look from him. They persisted wanting to know if he had ever put anything but his penis into his victim's rectums. He used towels to keep the bodies from leaking all over his bathroom before he dismembered them, Kearney told them. The police persisted, hoping to put to rest more of their freeway mysteries. How about torture? Did he ram anything into an anus for the sheer pleasure of it? Recognition crossed Kearney's face and he shook his head. I am not the wooden stake, he said. He knew exactly what the detectives were getting at, but impaling, strangling, and torturing his victims wasn't his style. A bullet to the head was clean and simple. He seemed offended that he would be confused with Randy Kraft. The trash bag murders investigation began officially on April 13, 1975, when the body of Albert Rivera, 21, of Los Angeles, was found near Highway 74, east of San Juan Capistrano, in a heavy-duty trash bag. But according to Kearney, in a series of letters, confessions, and conversations with the police, the killing began much earlier, in the mid-60s in Tijuana and San Diego. 
He led them to the site where he had buried one of his first victims, known only as George, behind his and Hill's Culver City apartment. The victim was killed around Christmas 1968. The police dug where Kearney indicated and came up with a skeleton with a single bullet hole in its skull. After killing George, a paranoid Kearney laid low for over a year. Nobody came knocking on his door, and he realized that he had actually gotten away with murder. A neighbor said he occasionally heard what she thought were gunshots, but had no idea they came from the Kearney and Hill apartment. After his arrest, Kearney wrote letters to the police, detailing the crimes, the names of the victims, and the places the bodies could be found. An 18th count of murder was filed the same day that the 13th Hillside Strangler victim was found. As to John LeMay, Hill wasn't home when his young lover came to the house, so Kearney invited him in to watch television. Without provocation, Kearney shot LeMay in the back of the head and later dumped his remains in the desert. He liked using the desert. The desert animals and insects removed evidence quickly and efficiently. Things disappear very rapidly in the desert, he told investigators. You can put a small animal on an anthill and it disappears right in front of your eyes. Kearney once had a flat tire during one of his drives to the desert to dispose of a body. When he discovered that the spare was flat too, he had to call a tow truck to get his car to a service station. Kearney stood by, sweating bullets while the attendant fixed the flat, never questioning the bags in the back seat, which contained arms, legs, a rib cage, and some intestines. Another time, he locked his keys in the car while inspecting possible dump sites. It took him hours to jimmy open the lock with a coat hanger, nervously looking over his shoulder the whole time, freshly filled trash bags again in the back seat. As soon as the bags were unloaded, though, he felt an enormous sense of relief, accomplishment, and power. After hearing three hours of evidence, the Riverside County Grand Jury refused to indict David Hill. Public defender Malcolm McMillan spirited him out of jail under a cloak of secrecy to protect him from reporters and photographers. Hill fled California and returned to Lubbock. Riverside District Attorney Byron Morton said, The evidence against Mr. Hill was weak, adding that much of the information unearthed by Riverside investigators tended to exonerate Hill. McMillan said he was not surprised the grand jury refused to indict Hill, adding that he didn't think there was sufficient evidence to hold him to answer in superior court. Kearney said that Hill was neither involved in nor aware of the murders. He said that he committed all the murders while Hill was away. Did Kearney take all the blame to free an innocent man or to absolve his lover? Is it likely that Hill was innocent? Against the advice of his attorney, Patrick Kearney changed his not guilty plea to a plea of guilty. His attorney advised him to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but Kearney pleaded guilty to the original three charges of murder and asked to be sentenced immediately in an apparent move to avoid California's death penalty. His actions were moot. The death penalty law didn't go into effect until August 1977. All of Kearney's homicides predated that time, so the death penalty was never an option for prosecutors. Superior Judge John Hughes handed down a life term with the possibility of parole in seven years. Judge Breckenridge said, This defendant has certainly perpetrated a series of ghastly and grisly crimes. I can only hope the Community Release Board will never release Mr. Kearney. He appears to be an insult to humanity. For what seems to be approximately 32 murders, Kearney was eventually charged with 21 counts of murder and received 21 life sentences. If all of his confessions are truthful, 
He also murdered two children, ages five and eight, along with four victims whose bodies were never recovered. At least seven of his victims remain unidentified. Patrick Kearney is today living out his life sentences in California. He writes essays and has a few of them published. The trash bag murders are considered among the most heinous crimes of the 20th century. Patrick Kearney's swath of death ranks him with the likes of Jerry Brudos, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and John Wayne Gacy. If he hadn't gotten sloppy, consciously or unconsciously, he'd probably still be doing it today.